You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. I'm on the road in NYC right now working on a couple of special projects, which I want you to keep your eyes and ears out for. And one of the crazy things is that Amazon, the Amazon, reached out to me a couple weeks ago and invited me to come out and to uh, film a show for Amazon Prime. And I know you're thinking, like, is Sean going to be an actor? No, I'm not talking about that kind of show. It was more of a value add and kind of a documentary uh, dictation of some of the content from Sleep Smarter. So over the last few years, and I'm very grateful to say this, we're actually coming up here now on the three-year anniversary of Sleep Smarter coming out. It seems like it's maybe been a year, but time has just flown by and it's created an absolute movement. I'm very grateful for that. And it's been the most reviewed, highest rated book on sleep wellness. And so I guess that got their attention and they reached out and wanted to have me come in. So that was fun and keep an eye out for that. I'll definitely share some information on that. And well, while I'm here, I wanna hook up with my friends. And this guy that I have on the show for you today, I met him a couple years ago at an event. He didn't know who I was. I didn't know who he was. I just knew he was a really awesome person. And we just clicked, you know, we had a great time and talked about it probably way too many crazy things. I think we even talked about Game of Thrones maybe, which we'll get to in a second. But man, this episode I'm so excited for because his new book is one of the best books of the year by far. You're definitely, definitely gonna wanna check it out. And before we get to it, you know, being on the road and traveling, I just came back from uh, literally another country then I came home for two days. Then I bounced over to another time zone here in NYC. And so me being somebody who's put so much information out and dedicated to my own sleep wellness, I need to have those strategies in place, you know, beforehand. And so one of the big things and something so simple that so many people are missing out on is taking advantage of specific supplementation when you're traveling. For me, I kind of reserve a lot of this stuff for when I'm traveling. But the thing that I brought with me, I do pretty much every day, 365, because of how valuable it is. And it's simply making sure that my magnesium levels are up to par. And so check this out. There's a double-blind placebo-controlled study, and this was published in the Journal of Research and Medical Sciences. And it, again, double-blind placebo-controlled. This is the gold standard of study. And they looked at the placebo group and then a group who was taking magnesium. And all these folks had chronic sleep issues, a.k.a. insomnia. And here's what happened when they did the magnesium supplementation. Number one, they dramatically, and this is what the researcher said, statistically significant increases in sleep onset. So that means they fall asleep faster. Overall sleep time improved. Sleep efficiency, so their sleep cycles were more efficient. And they also had improvement in objective measures. So they actually were objectively testing their melatonin improved and reduced serum cortisol. All from magnesium. All right, something so simple. Guess what the number one mineral deficiency is in our country? Magnesium, all right? So for me, I, I do employ food first. Magnesium-rich foods, anything green is gonna be helpful, but magnesium is responsible for, for so many things, about 325 biochemical processes, it can get zapped from your system pretty quickly. And so I look to oral supplementation, so there's great products out there for that, but here's the problem. And I want you to be aware of this because I don't want any surprises. You do the oral supplementation, a little magnesium powder, and you take a little bit too much, 
And then you got disaster pants, a.k.a. you poop yourself, a.k.a. it causes diarrhea. So you got to be careful about that. But for some people, it could help to nudge things along a little bit. But just be aware, it pulls water to your bowel, so you have to be careful about that. This is why it's so difficult to get your magnesium levels up via oral supplementation and why I use a topical magnesium. All right, I use a sprayable magnesium from Ease Magnesium from Activation Products, and I've been using it for at least half a decade. I absolutely love that stuff. It helps with recovery, obviously helps improve sleep quality, and I travel with it. It's a you know a little bottle, I throw it into my, what is it, the toiletries bag? I throw it in there and I even travel with it. And I definitely, definitely recommend it. I just get so many stories about people that start using it about how it's improved their sleep or improved their recovery. For some folks, it even gives them energy throughout the day, uh, just getting their magnesium levels up. But it's a calm, natural energy just because your system is working right. So definitely check it out. It's easemagnesium.com forward slash model. That's E-A-S-E magnesium.com forward slash model. And you get 15% off of the Ease Magnesium. All right, so definitely head over there, check it out. It's one of my favorite things for sure. Travel with it definitely helps with sleep wellness. All right, so pop over, check it out. And on that note, let's get to the Apple Podcast Review of the Week. Another five-star review titled Addicting by Sierra Sakash. This podcast was recently recommended to me by a friend and I cannot stop listening to it. The episode with Dr. Jolene Brighton and the episode on heart disease were so informative and eye-opening. I was healthy before, but I am learning as I listen and implementing the knowledge into my own life and my children's lives as I go. Wow, thank you so very much for sharing that review with me over on Apple Podcasts and for sharing with everybody. And also, that's an incredible story. And that's really why we do what we do is to not just impact our own lives, but the lives of the people that we care about. So thank you so very much. And everybody, if you've yet to do so, please pop over to Apple Podcasts, leave a review for the show or whatever platform you're listening on, leave a review. Even if you're watching, hanging out in the studio with us, leave a comment, subscribe, all right? And I uh, appreciate it so very much. And on that note, let's get to our special guest and our topic of the day. Our guest today is Mark Manson, and he is a writer, entrepreneur, and self-help author that takes an entirely different perspective on life advice. His mega-hit New York Times bestselling book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a f took the world by storm and has impacted the lives of countless people around the world. And he's just a really great guy. And when I met him, I was like, but he does give a f you know, I didn't, I didn't understand the connection, but it's a subtle art to it. And that book has just been a game changer, but his new book, oh my goodness, I'm just loving it so much. And it's called Everything Is F and it's subtitled A Book About Hope. And I'd like to welcome to the Model Health Show, my man, Mark Manson. What's up, man? Thanks for having me, dude. It's my pleasure, it's man. It's good to be here. Very, very happy to have <laughs> you. So are you from NYC? Originally, no. I grew up in Texas. Yeah. So what brought you here? Uh, getting out of Texas. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no offense to anybody no in Texas. Offense. No offense. <laughs> I love many places in Texas. Yeah, it just wasn't the right fit. I'm an yeah. East Coast guy. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It def like that's. I just kind of felt that you fit here. You yeah. know what I'm saying? You have that vibe. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I went to school in Boston and probably like the first week, you know, just this young Texas kid. I'm walking around Boston and everybody's like, hey, what's your problem? You know, and I'm like, I like this place. Like <laughs> <laughs> so we was just talking before the show. Um, so, man, just amazing what happened with your last book. Yeah. And you were sharing that 
something took place that we've kind of been talking a little bit about, which yeah. is, you know, people achieve this massive success that they've been working towards and then they either get depressed or like a spiritual awakening or something takes place. Yeah. And you had something happen. Let's yeah, talk about it. It messed with me. So to give a little context, I started writing online and marketing online probably like 2008. Um, and I was doing the same thing that, you know, a lot of people do, you know, a lot of affiliate stuff and blogging and creating sales letters and, and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, kind of in the back of my mind, I was, I always kind of had this dream of like, I'd love to have a book, you know, love to be like a real author one day. Um, and so I worked for years and years and years and built this big following online and then eventually like got my shot, got a book deal. Um, and that, that book was Subtle Art. And so, you know, when you're young, I was like 29. And, and when you're young and an aspiring author and it's your first book, you've got this whole list of like dreams and goals in your head. You're like, yeah, one day I'd love to be like on the New York Times. And, you know, one day I'm going to sell a million books. And one day I'm going to like be on TV, you know, and like all this stuff. And the book came out and basically that list of dreams in my head, I hit every single one in like three months. Mm, wow. And which is incredible. See, this is the thing that's so messed up about this is like, Everything that happens to you is so incredible, but people don't realize that once you achieve all your dreams, you have no dreams anymore. Yeah. And so you you wake up and you're like, well, why why get out of bed? Like, I already accomplished everything. I like since I was 20 that I dreamed about, like there there's nothing else for me to accomplish. So I fell into this like really weird kind of depression or like malaise. Um but it's strange because you can't really tell people about it. Cause like if you if you start telling people, you're like, yeah, man, I, I'm having trouble getting out of bed in the morning. And they're like, dude, you just sold a million books. Like, <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? Um, and so that just kind of exacerbates. Like you feel very, it feels very alienating for a while because people don't understand like what you're going through. Um, and so yeah, it messed me up. It messed me up for about a year. Um and I had to find new new dreams and new yeah, goals yeah. and uh, new projects, um, and, and and really kind of just like rediscover myself, I suppose. Man, you know what? And I'm, I'm assuming that this is kind of the um, seed of this new book. Yeah, because I know that, and hopefully, there's going to be a third book in this in this <laughs> in this series and genre. I mean, you've created a movement yeah, already. Yeah. But, you know, with this one, I think it was maybe, is it a little bit more personal? Is that? Yeah. Well, it, it's ironic because Subtle Art had, was full of personal stories, you know? So I, I talked about my breakups. I talked about my family problems. I talked about my friend dying. Um, but I had been talking about those things for so long that it, it wasn't, it didn't feel like emotionally super vulnerable when I wrote it. Whereas this book, I don't talk about my, my life at all. Uh, but it is super personal because it's kind of the first chapter I talk about how hope is kind of like the fuel of our mind. Like if you don't have hope for anything, then there's, you literally feel no reason to do anything. You know, it's like hope is this vision of some better future for yourself. And if you don't have that vision, then it's like, well, whatever, just eat Cheetos and watch TV all day. Like it's, it's nothing matters. Um, 
And so that kind of that starting point, I wanted to write about it because I felt that, you know, it's like, you know, I'm just like, I'm, I was literally sitting around playing Zelda like 12 hours a day. <laughs> and, and like every time I looked at my bank account, it's like, you know, just exploding with money. And I'm like, yeah. this is insane. Like what? I didn't know. I, I really didn't know what to do with myself. And so people, a lot of people that would hear that would just be like, that doesn't even sound right. Like I would be out doing such and such. Yeah. But every single person listening has experienced this, which is something you talk about in the book. It's the paradox of pro progress. Yeah. As we've grown as a society, everything has gotten better. Like if we really, there's so many shows about this stuff now. Yeah. There's a show on Netflix called The Last Kingdom, which me and my wife got into. And just like stuff was so brutal, yeah. you know, years ago. Like you literally, your your life was at stake every moment, yes. essentially. You know, some invading tribe can come in and, you know. And today we have so many creature comforts. Life is, you know, all, you know, even though it seems through the media crime is so bad, everything is down. Yeah, There's so many things, that, problems that have been resolved. More people are getting fed around the world than ever before. And, but yet there's this feeling that something's messed up. Yeah. That everything is as you talk about. Yeah. And it, it's harder, the better things get, the harder it is to generate that hope. Because when you're like fighting for survival, hope is easy. It's just survive, like just make it to the next day. But when you're like really comfortable, have a great life, have no money problems, are healthy, you know, it's what do you hope for? It, it, it becomes a very difficult question. And I, I think that's one reason why, you know, before before we went on air, you know, you were talking about like some of these guys who have this explosive success, like they, they, they find religion or they go back to religion. And I think that's one, it's actually something I talk about in the book is, is that religion is, is like kind of a constant reservoir of hope for people. Um, and it's, and so when you experience that worldly success and you're sitting around in your mansion and, you know, it's like, well, what do I hope for? Well, there's always, there's always Jesus. So, you know, and you, you, you kind of go back to that. The, the, the thing I'll say too about people like not relating or understanding. And, and I, I always, I just want to say this cause I'm sure there are people out there like, oh, boo hoo, like dude sold millions of books <laughs> and is sitting here talking about how depressed he is. But the, the funny thing that I noticed when I was going through this too is that I, I would have these heart-to-heart -heart conversations with my friends and, and they would think I was crazy. They're like, dude, what's your problem, man? Like, man, if I if that happened to me, like I, I'd go I'd be doing all sorts of awesome stuff. I'm like, okay, like what? Like, oh man, well, I, I'd like buy a new car and go to Vegas and like do this and buy this for my mom. And and I was like, okay. So that's all the first two weeks. What do you do on week three? And and it's like what you real what you don't realize is that all your dreams, like all those dreams that you have of like, oh man, if if one day I'm rich, I'm gonna do that. That doesn't even last you a month. Like you can knock out all those like one after the other, and then after a month, you're just sitting around. And you're like, okay, now what? You know, like it's just it's like a never ending thing yeah. and um, you can either get sucked down into the, the trap of always needing more um, or you can try to find your way out of it. But to find your way out of it, you need to find meaning and hope from something like outside of 
the material world. Mm. And I want to get into that. And I just thought about this line, and I've, I've said this before, it's from Kanye West. Shout out to you if you're okay, Kanye. <laughs> but uh, he said, having money's not everything, not having it is. Yep. So when we don't have money and we're operating on that survival, yep. right? And it's just, that's what gets you out of bed is to take care of your survival needs and the survival needs of your family. But then we have this paradox take place and understanding money isn't everything. And again, everybody that's listening to this, the vast majority of people, your life conditions are pretty good compared mm -hmm. to where they would have been, you know, 100 years ago or even 20 years ago for yeah. that matter. You know, we have instant access to every answer, right? You're, you're almost a cyborg, yeah, you right. know, <laughs> and we have access to information that can lift us out of our circumstances. We don't need to pay, you know, six figures to go to the most pristine university to, to get whatever it is, mm -hmm. you know. There are so many barriers have been broken down, and yet we're struggling more than ever with anxiety and depression mm -hmm. and all of these different conditions of mental illness. And you say it's because, you know, we largely are dealing with this paradox of progress. Yeah. And one of the things you talk about, too, which is super fascinating, is that we all make up hope narratives. Mm -hmm. we and in fact, we need hope narratives in order for us to be a functional human being to get us out of bed in the morning. So let's talk about what that means. Sure. So the those visions of a better future that I talked about, like each of those visions, it, it's accompanied with like a before and after story, you know? So let's just take my, my hope narrative that, you know, kind of informed this whole mess, which is I had this dream in my head of like, one day I want to be a best-selling author. You know, I want to be a successful author and you know, man, if I can just do that, my life will be amazing. And so what I created in my head was this little narrative of like, if I go from here to best-selling author, and then I get all the rewards, life's going to be amazing. You know, all my problems today are going to be gone. I'm going to feel completely differently. I'm going to, I'm going to be a different person. And it's, it's such like a, it's a little trap that our psychology plays on us because if you do achieve, if you do achieve that, you come out the other side and you're like, wait, I don't feel different. I'm not a different person. <laughs> and then it's like, oh crap, what was this all for? Like, like I just spent years of work and it's like, I feel the same. My friends are the same. My relationships are the same. You know, like I still wake up with like bad breath. Like, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> Um, you know, so like the fundamental things don't actually change. And so you need to just to kind of psychologically keep going, you got to spin up another narrative. And, you know, for a lot of people, then, then the, the narrative becomes like, okay, well, I need, I need more. Like I need, maybe I need to sell even more books or maybe I need to write a screenplay or maybe I need to, uh, you know, get into music and, and then that vision becomes the new narrative. And then you start working towards that. And so what I in, eventually describe it as is, is that it's this psychological mirage that we keep building for ourselves. It, I, I think it's evolutionarily designed to just keep us moving and keep us pushing and creating and, and fighting. Um, because if we didn't have these little visions and narratives in our head, you know, we'd sit around and do nothing. Like, I think that's honestly, that is what depression is, is not having that narrative of meaning for your own life. 
you know, the narrative creates the meaning of your life. So if you don't have that vision of hope, you don't have that narrative, you don't have the meaning in your life, you lay in bed all day wondering what the point is. Yeah. You know? And you've got a formula in the book in looking at um, what exactly constitutes to create our hope, to build and maintain hope. You say we need three things, a sense of control, mm-hmm. a belief in the value of something, and a community. So yeah. let's talk about those three things. Sure. So first one, sense of control is if you, well, let's, let's actually start with the value one. So the value one is you need to you need to actually believe that something is worthwhile, something is worth pursuing, um, that there is such a thing as a better future. Um, and without that vision, then you just, there's no reason to do anything. Two, you need, you need a sense of self-control because if you don't feel as though you're in control of your own life, there's no way for you to get there. You know, and, and the sense of control, it can be anything from, it can be an out external um, kind of oppression, you know, it's, it's, let's say you live in North Korea or something, and it's like you, you have no control over your own life, but it can also be an internal thing. Right. It's, you know, somebody who honestly feels like they, they can't get, get up in the morning or, or they suffer from addiction or um, have really bad habits and they, they just can't break out of them. And so that sense of not being able to control your own destiny eventually removes hope. You know, they, they see those visions of a better future and they're like, I'm never going to make it. You know, it's just, it's too hard. And then the third requisite is a sense of community. We need, ultimately, we're a social species and we need to feel as though uh, we have support from others um, in our pursuits and, and our values and that we're able to support others in their pursuits and their values. Um and so when when it, if you take away any of those three things, the other two fall. You know, if you if you remove a community, then you you look at your vision of of what's important, and if nobody agrees with it, you're like, well, maybe I'm just crazy. Maybe, you know, what what am I thinking? You know, um, if you remove uh, a sense of control, then it's like you just feel like you're never going to get there. And then if you remove that vision of value in the first place, then it's you just sit around eating Cheetos. <laughs> it's the second time Cheetos have come up. Hey, I got a you thing know? with Cheetos, man. I'm thinking about the flaming hot. <laughs> so here's the thing, man, is that when you hear something like this, it's just like, well, just do those things. Yeah. And it's not that simple. Oh, no. And this is why I love this book so much is because you get into why it's not that simple. Yeah. And it's addressing something that is super fascinating and very real that is literally just hiding in plain sight. And this is the fact that we have these two brains. Yeah. And man, just let's talk about first, let's talk about what the hell you mean by that, <laughs> by these two brains sure. and then dive in deeper. Yeah. So I create this analogy early on in the book that I kind of use to explain the rest of the book. I say we have two brains. We have a thinking brain and a feeling brain. And it's, you know, it's pretty self-explanatory. The thinking brain is like our conscious thought or being able to calculate, plan, reason, create a calendar, a schedule. Our feeling brain is our impulses, our emotions, um, you know, maybe some of our subconscious baggage and crap that bubbles up sometimes. Um, but ultimately, our conscious thinking, like our conscious perception of ourselves is our thinking brain. And because our conscious perception of ourselves is our thinking brain, 
our thinking brain thinks it's in control of us. And, and the, the, the analogy I use is that like our consciousness is a car and the thinking brain thinks, like we tend to think that the thinking brain is driving and the feeling brain is sitting in the passenger seat like a obnoxious kid screaming like, I want to go there. Like, oh, oh, turn here, turn here. And you're in the thinking brain's like, shut up, shut up, you know? And, and you have to like summon all this willpower to like just keep going down your road of life. Uh, but all the psychological research actually shows the opposite. Yeah. The feeling brain is driving and it drives wherever, wherever the hell it wants to go. And the thinking brain is basically stuck in the passenger seat drawing the map. So the thinking brain gets to decide what the lay of the land is, but if the feeling brain doesn't want to go there, it doesn't go there. And so there's a very complex exercise of self-awareness. Basically, the thinking brain needs to learn how to talk to the feeling brain and listen to the feeling brain to be able to get the car to go where in healthy directions, essentially directions that make sense that are are good for us long term that create good relationships that um you know that aren't aren't just pure indulgence all the time and that's really hard to do like it requires a lot of like inner work essentially yeah. and um and so and if we don't if we if we don't do that inner work like if we're very if our if we're very cut off from our feeling brain and we feel like our feeling brain is just driving wherever the hell it wants to go and we're just stuck like stuck in the passenger seat without any control that destroys our hope you know and and i think the the most extreme example of that would be like an addiction you know like alcoholism or something it's like alcoholics feel completely out of control of their own lives they feel like the alcohol controls their life and it's cuz it's just the feeling brain just keeps driving there mm. and um and so any any form of therapy is developing a process of getting those two brains synced up mm. talking to each other listening to each other removing judgment um removing shame etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah and this is just you know everybody listening right now you know that you're capable of so much there's so many different things that you can do in your life and we are aware of that we're aware of this the tactics mm -hmm. we're aware of the strategies we know what we need to do generally to get there but this speaks to why so many struggle with, you know, with their relationship or with their finances. Like, you know, the tactics to having good health, mm -hmm. but we struggle to do them. You know, it's just Cheetos and beer, yeah. you know, whatever. <laughs> like you just, for me, it's the Funyuns, man. But, you know, so you, those things, even though, you know, the logical steps, sure. because the thinking brain is all about logic. This is why we fail is because the feeling brain is controlling our decisions at the end of the day. Yep. It's doing what it wants. Yeah. And and the tactics, the tactics are like, they're short term. So a tactic like, let's say you, you know, sit down and create like a list of goals and a whole plan for yourself and you get very excited about it. You know, it's, it's the excitement that actually gets you up in the morning in pursuing it. It's the excitement about the plan. It's not, you know, it's not the plan itself. Um, and so a lot of what what we talk about in our world about like- Wait, can you say that again, man? Yeah, Say sure. that again. It's the excitement <laughs> of, please. So like if you sit down, let's say, let's say you go online and you find like the ultimate workout plan and you're like, hell yeah, this is gonna, this is gonna get me my six pack, like my biceps are gonna be bulging, my butt's gonna look amazing. 
you know, and and you set up a spreadsheet and you get it, it's all color coded and you plan everything out for the next six months. What actually gets you up in the morning is the excitement about the spreadsheet. It's not the spreadsheet itself. The spreadsheet is just the thinking brain thinking. What actually gets you to the gym is the excitement about that spreadsheet. And this is what happens to everybody is that after the first week, the spreadsheet's not exciting anymore. And so you stop going. It's like 90, 95% of people drop off. And the only people that stay are the people that find a way to stay excited about it. Yeah. And it's so it's everything that we understand is these little tactics to like get yourself out of bed or to sleep better. You know, it's they are short term thinking brain solutions that will work for a little while. But unless you emotionally get invested into it, unless you find a way to be excited about it, to love it, to appreciate it, it doesn't stick. Yeah. It'll never stick. But that emotion can be positive or negative totally. as well. You know, you could be doing this out of the excitement and joy of it, or you could be doing it out of a sense of hatred. Yes, absolutely. Let's talk about that. And it's and this is interesting because a lot of people who have a lot of self-loathing, they're some of the most disciplined people on the planet, you know? And it's because it's this, they they perceive everything through the terms of like self-abuse. You know, it's like, I'm a piece of crap, so I need to get up at 5 a.m. and, you know, run 10 miles every single day because I'm a piece of crap. And it's actually that I'm a piece of crap is what actually keeps them doing it. Hmm. Um, and so it's a real crazy it's a real crazy kind of interaction that happens. And and one of the things that I end up arguing in my book is that ultimately self-discipline is about self-acceptance. It's about, it's a basically about coming to terms and understanding your own emotions and then learning how to leverage your emotions to go in positive directions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's essentially, it's it's anything past like the very basic level Anything past the tactical level, it's it's emotional work. Mm. It's like getting your getting your mind in order. So fascinating because you know what we tend to do because it's the thinking brain is that you know we see somebody who's not successful at you know their health or their relationship. We think it's a lack of character. Yeah, but it's not that. It's not no. that. It's dealing with these brains and getting them to communicate. So let's kind of get into a little bit. So the emotions they're driving the car. And so what some scientists and physicians for a long time figured out to do is that let's just get in there and actually slice out a little bit of that brain, yeah. that little bit of that emotional brain that's causing you know, all of this, you know, <laughs> just going here and there doing whatever. And this was a treatment for mental illness. Yeah, right? lobotomies. Lobotomies yeah. for years. Yeah. But that didn't go very well. No. It did, it, it, I mean, it worked. <laughs> it worked to get the initial result, but the yeah. long-term results were not what people were thinking. It was disastrous. Yeah. It was absolutely disastrous. So one thing I talk about in the book, I call it the classic assumption, which it goes all the way back to the Greeks. And then it, it carries on, um, you know, Christian theology kind of borrowed it from Plato and Aristotle and and. It, it's basically the basis of kind of Western culture is this classic assumption that that the thinking brain is driving 
And if you cannot control your emotions, it is a failure of character. Like you are weak, you are deficient, you are faulty. Um, basically, you need to beat your emotions and impulses into submission uh, and just become this like very unfeeling robotic type person. And this assumption informed pretty much everything up until about 100 years ago. And one of the... I think one of the reasons it kind of stopped is is once our science started getting good enough to actually kind of test these ideas, they realized how wrong they were. And the lobotomy is like the most disastrous example of that. So back in the 30s, and this is true, like they found what they would do is they would stick an ice pick up a patient's nose. They would take somebody with like manic depression, schizophrenia, um, bipolar like all these things eating disorders eating disorders addiction and then they would they would take an ice pick they'd stick it up the patient's nose and they they found that if they scraped the frontal lobe and what they were actually doing is they were they were cutting the connections between the the two brains in the frontal lobe um that the patient would chill out and be like pretty sanguine and calm and like hey man everything's fine um what they were essentially doing is they were just taking a, a club to the thinking brain or to the feeling brain, just knocking the feeling brain out. Um, and so the person stopped freaking out, stopped having depression, stopped, you know, kind of being this emotional mess. The problem is, is when you knock the feeling brain out, you can't drive anywhere. So what also happened is that these people just sat around all day and they, they didn't see the value of anything. Uh, they, they didn't go to work anymore. You know, they would lose their jobs. They, all their relationships would fall apart because they basically just became these kind of emotionless zombies. Um, there's actually a quote in the book that I mentioned that it's crazy. Out of all the countries to ban the lobotomy, the Soviet Union was first, um, which is like, you know, you got a problem when the Soviet Union is banning a procedure, um, and it's basically what the what what a doctor in the Soviet Union said is that um, what we're doing is we're taking uh, we're p- taking people who are insane and we're turning them into idiots. Hmm. You know, we're taking people who can't function because they're too emotive and just removing any ability to function whatsoever. Hmm. Um, and so by the sixties, the lobotomy was gone, and and psychologists and psychiatrists it wasn't that long ago you know i was like man dude it was like our my like my parents lived through this stuff yeah, you know like apparently good. uh jfk's sister was one of the, the last lobotomy patients unbelievable um and yeah she basically just became a zombie she just sat at home all day so it, it really wasn't until about the 70s and 80s that we started to discover that we're just totally irrational creatures yeah, yeah. <laughs> that we don't um you know and there's tons of great books out on this now you know like daniel kahneman's work and there's a guy named dan Ariely, dan gilbert a lot of dans um that's interesting yeah <laughs> uh, but they, there's a lot of books out there about how we think we're making rational decisions we're not being rational at all we think that we're um you know our perceptions are, are true and they're completely off base um, that basically just our psychology is very flawed and it, and a lot of it comes down to the fact that we are fundamentally emotionally based creatures. Mm. We got to talk about that because 
uh, in the book, you talk about the fact that the feeling brain, this is a direct quote from the book, the feeling brain drives our consciousness, Carr, mm-hmm. because ultimately we are moved to action only by emotion because action is emotion. Yeah. What? <laughs> so he, here's one of these kind of crazy things I came across when I was reading about like the neuroscience of emotion. So uh, various like thoughts and functions in our brain, you know, like if I, if I raise my right arm, you know, it's, there are places in my brain that will like light up and kind of show that. Um, what's interesting though, is that if I have like an emotion, if I start feeling kind of sad, there'll be some things in my brain that light up, but there's also like a fully physiological response. And we all know this intuitively. We just don't think about it. You know, it's like when you're sad, you're not just, it's not just a thing that occurs up here. Like you slump over, you know, your, your, your limbs feel heavy. Um, you know, maybe you're, you get kind of like a feeling like there's a rock in your stomach. Um, if you're angry, there's like this momentum to your movement. Um, you stand up straight, like your face contorts, you know? And so what they find is that actually the whole nervous system gets involved with our emotions. Um, and a lot of different, like our digestive tract gets involved with our emotions. Um, so it's a full body response. And so it's, and what's fascinating is that for a long time, I mean, it's, if you look at like NLP and some of some like the old school self-help stuff, one of the things that you always find is they say that like, if you want to change your emotion, change your action, you know? So if you want to feel, uh, more active and happier, it's like, you need to get up and like jump up and down and scream. And like what, you know, you'll actually change your emotional state simply by just doing some physical actions. And so there's this, there's this one-to-one relationship between our, our body and how we perceive our emotional states. Um, and so this is why it, it's, you know, I describe emotions as actions because it's, it's when you understand that the feeling brain is in charge, you start to understand that all these things, like if, if you have a problem with procrastination, that's an emotional problem. If you have a problem with, uh, you know, sleeping in too late, that's an emotional problem. If you have a problem of, you know, overeating, that's an emotional problem. Like these are all all of our actions that feel outside of our control, the reason they feel that outside of our control is that there's an emotional issue going on. There's some, the the feeling brain is driving somewhere without us knowing or wanting it to. And that is fundamentally an emotional issue that needs to be investigated and, and, and resolved. Yeah. And even on a just very simple biochemical level, your thoughts or not it, your feelings mm-hmm. are literally creating a cascade of chemicals in your body as well. Absolutely. And so, so physically changing your state like that, it's probably really difficult to like do jumping jacks and like be ang- angry. <laughs> you know, I mean, at least you'll feel kind of silly, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, but that literally changes that cascade hormones and neurotransmitters and they're yeah. just doing different stuff. Yeah. And so really understanding that even through the process of, you know, our thoughts and, Feelings are so connected. You know, every thought has an associated feeling. Yep. And that feeling brain is giving you feedback on those thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And it's so powerful, but we just don't pay attention to it. And we're also feeling very disempowered yeah. to even deal with any of that stuff. Like we just kind of 
either for a lot of us, we just live in that thinking side or we just live in that feeling side. Yeah. And getting this cohesive action going is really what the book is about. And it was so awesome to see it all come together because this communication, so it's asking the question, how do we get our feeling brain to start listening maybe a little mm -hmm. bit to the thinking brain? And how does the thinking brain actually communicate effectively with the feeling brain? And we're going to talk about that right after this quick break. So sit tight and we'll be right back. One of the biggest barriers of entry to eating healthy is the expense involved. This is one of the biggest reasons that people use for not buying better products is that it just costs too much. And there are incredible grocery stores, mom and pop spots out there, chain stores like Whole Foods that are great. They're providing a lot of value and curating a lot of great products. Not always great, but a lot of great products. But the nickname is often Whole Paycheck because there's a pretty big markup for the whole process of getting the best products there on a store shelf. And so I really wanted to do something to help eliminate that barrier of entry to help people to get more access to healthy food and to get products that are curated and getting the very best brands that are doing good for people and for the planet. And this is why I utilize Thrive Market. Thrive Market provides many of the same products that you would find in stores like Whole Foods, but at 25 to 50% off most of the retail costs, which is absolutely mind blowing. You could save 25 to 50% off many of your favorite products, your coconut oils, your nut butters, your snack bars for the kids, kale chips, whatever it is you're into. Also personal care products. It's another big thing that's taking place right now is a shift in public consciousness and understanding it's not just what you put in your body, it's what you put on your body as well and getting rid of all these toxic chemicals, but still getting the very best products. Also, household products as well, cleaning products. So you're not putting all these chemicals and things like that that are gonna impact your health and the health of the people that you love. And so they have all the best products, 25 to 50% off and curated in whatever food approach that you subscribe to, whether it's gluten-free, paleo, vegetarian, all of these things are categorized for easy shopping. All right, it's absolutely amazing. I love Thrive Market so much. We save so much money. We literally save hundreds of dollars every year by buying many of our staples from Thrive Market. All right, so head over there right now. Check them out. It's thrivemarket.com forward slash model health together as one word. So that's model health together as one word. And guess what? Not only are you going to save 25 to 50% off of products anyways, your first purchase, you're going to save an additional 25% off your entire cart. All right. It's amazing. Plus also free shipping, plus also free 30 day membership. And you're going to want to keep this membership because it's just going to keep giving back over and over and over again. And giving back is another big thing that Thrive Market is doing because every paid membership, they provide a free membership to a family in need. All right, this could be uh, a teacher, this could be a veteran, this could be a low-income household to keep paying it forward to reduce that barrier of entry so that more people can get access to the very best healthy food. All right, so definitely head over there, check them out, thrivemarket.com forward slash model health. And now back to the show. All right, we're back and we're talking with New York Times bestselling author Mark Manson. And before the break, we were getting into how in the world can we actually get our thinking brain to communicate effectively with our emotional feeling yeah. brain. So for, first, I want to, I, I kind of want to, you actually mentioned it in passing. I think it's really important. You said that a lot of people just live in the feeling brain 
They're all impulse all the time. They don't really think through their actions. And then there's some people who are all thinking brain all the time, which is that they feel, they ruminate a lot, um, they overanalyze things, but they never, they, they feel like they can never take action. Um, and so the goal to be kind of like an integrated and, and healthy person psychologically is to get the two brains fully communicating with one another. Um, so the first thing I, I kind of say is that, uh, you know, the, the first step is that the thinking brain needs to, you, you just need to recognize that you're not in charge. Like you've got all these feelings and impulses and habits that are come from a whole lifetime of experience, a lot of crap from your childhood, a lot of assumptions that you're not even aware of. Uh, and that's what's driving most of your, your desires and your behavior. And so just coming to terms with that is kind of the first step. The next step is like, let's say you want to build a basic habit of, let's say meditation. Let's say you, you want to start like a meditation habit. Um, most people, what they do is they're like, all right, I don't want to get into meditating. So they go to their calendar and they're like, all right, 30 minutes every morning, first thing when I wake up or whatever, 20 minutes every day after work, you know, and it's, they put it on their calendar and then the first day comes and they go to do it and they sit down and they're like, damn, this is hard. And then after like minute four or five, they're like, wow, I'm really bored. Well, all right, yeah, I guess I, I screwed that up. And then they get up and they go do something else and then they miss the next day and they're like, oh, well, this is so hard. Like, I, maybe it's not for me. And they start thinking all these things. And the, the problem is, is that they never, the thinking brain has this understanding and desire. Meditation is hel healthy. It's helpful. It's a good habit. And I'd like to implement it into my life. The feeling brain hates being bored. So the feeling brain's like, no, -uh, we're not doing that. So if you actually want to create a meditation habit, the first that you you basically have to start bargaining with your feeling brain mm -hmm. with options to the point where the feeling brain will get on board. So what you can do is kind of have this dialogue with yourself. The thinking brain will throw out an idea or a thought, and then you sit there and just wait for a feeling to come in response. But so that's important because the thinking brain thinks the feelings will come back in words. Like I'll no, get some kind of yeah. There's that's just the thinking brain talking to itself. There's no <laughs> word. Yeah, exactly. There are no word. The feeling brain is does not communicate in words. It communicates in feelings, sensations, I, you know, impulses. So what you would do is you'd say, okay, feeling brain, I want to implement a, a meditation habit. Meditation is super healthy. It's going to make us feel better. That's good, right? And the feeling brain would be like, yeah, that's good. Like you'll, there'll be a positive feeling. And you're like, okay, 20 minutes a day. And then you'll notice like some anxiety will come up, maybe a little bit of resistance, a little bit of fear, like, oh, that's a lot, like 20 minutes, man. It's like, okay, maybe not 20 minutes. How about 10? Feeling brain's like, hmm, maybe. It's like, okay, how about this? How about we start with three, three minutes? Feeling brain's like, that's easy. Hell yeah, let's do that. And then you go sit for three minutes and you get up and you're like, damn, that was easy. And then you feel good about it. You feel good about what you just did. And then you do the next day. You're like, hey, remember we did that three minutes? Remember how good that felt? Feeling brave, like, yeah, yeah, it felt pretty good. And you do it again. And then you slowly build up from there. And it's funny because what I just described is like habit forming 101. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. it, it's, there's no, uh, there's nothing new about it. 
all I'm doing is I'm simply describing it from the emotional point of view. Because the reason that these habit formation strategies work is because you're you're basically you're working with your feeling brain instead of against it. You know, if you just try to brute force your feeling brain, if you're just like, screw it, I'm running a marathon next month, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's it's gonna backfire. Um, so you have to find the actions that generate more positive emotion and then slowly keep working up from there. Oh man. One of the other really blatant, it's so blatantly obvious, but we don't think about it. And that's why I love, I love books and insights like that. It's just like, of course, that makes total sense. Yeah. Is that the thinking brain, when we come to this realization that it's not in control, our our feeling brain is controlling our lives, but the thinking brain has control over meaning. Yes. And you talked about that in the book. And I just thought that that was so profound because we are meaning making machines. Yes. You know, and I think attaching, having that meaning helps to communicate with the feeling brain in a sense. Absolutely. Um, yeah, the thinking, so the feeling brain's power is action. The thinking brain's power is meaning. So, and this and this is also kind of just classic self-help stuff, but it, it it's, let's say you, you're trying to build like a, an exercise habit and you miss a day. Well, there's a lot of different ways you can interpret missing that day. You can judge yourself. You can say like, man, I'm such a screw up. I always mess this up. And that will create a certain response in the feeling brain. You can say, well, hey, it's understandable. You know, I deserve a day off, blah, blah, blah. That will create a, a sensation in the feeling brain. Mm -hmm. Or you could say, you know, missing a day is understandable, but I want to find, look at my behavior and my patterns to make sure I don't do this again. And then that will create a response in the feeling brain. And what's interesting is that people who fail to create new habits, it's because the meaning that they, like anybody who tries to adopt a new habit, you're going to screw up. Like it's just, that's just life. You're going to screw up. You're going to fail. It's going to take a few tries. But a lot of what determines whether you're you're able to get back on the horse or not is that meaning that you create around that failure. Mm. Is that an indictment on you as a person? Is that the classic assumption of like, oh, you failed because you're a weak person? Well, if you do that, your feeling brain's gonna feel awful. Right. And you're just disempowering yourself. Um, are you gonna justify it with like, are you gonna create a meaning of like entitlement of like, oh, well, you know, I worked so hard today, so I deserve to not go to the gym. Well, that might make your feeling brain feel good, but it's not going to get you to go to the gym again. You know, so you have to find the meaning that it's going to create the proper emotions that are going to keep propelling you forward. Right. And that's essentially what emotional intelligence is, mm -hmm. is creating meaning from your experiences that create helpful emotions. And it just kind of becomes this, this cycle that just, it's a virtuous cycle that mm -hmm. just starts spinning up. Um, but it, it takes a lot of, self-awareness and a lot of work to get to that point yeah or we end up with the clown car yeah <laughs> so let's talk about that clown car the really clown quick. car man oh so the clown car it's actually a really good point um and i completely forgot about it so what we our natural state or our natural tendency just as humans is to I guess you could call this the path of least resistance, is the feeling brain drives wherever it wants to drive, 
and the thinking brain will just start justifying what the feel where the feeling brain wants to drive. So let's say the feeling brain's just careening all over the place, you know, driving to Dunkin' Donuts three times a day and and the feeling brain will say, like, oh well, you know, I deserve this and oh yeah, well that's a good decision and yeah, yeah, let's have some more ice cream. Like right, it's the it's, thinking brain will do that. Yeah, the thinking brain will do that. So the thinking brain is justifying all the impulses and urges of the feeling brain. And and that keeps a state of kind of uh, cohesiveness in a sense. Yeah. But it's not self-serving. No. Yeah. No, it's uh, you're basically you you basically turn into a narcissist. You mm-hmm. you you turn into somebody who is completely self-indulgent. And not just with like you know, we've been using health examples you know, because of this podcast, but this is true with like relationships, you know? So, um, you know, we've all known a person in our lives who uh, is completely selfish and is able to rationalize their behavior no matter what they do. Um, They're able to make everything about them all the time. And essentially what they're doing is that their thinking brain is just constantly justifying what their feeling brain wants. Um, Because our feeling brain is just this, it's the animal side of ourselves. Like it's just ravenous and selfish and and just very indulgent. Um, and it's our thinking brain that has to kind of temper that and direct that. Um, but if the thinking brain just falls in line and does whatever the feeling brain wants, mm-hmm. then then we just turn into like just this very self-indulgent person. So I call that the clown card just because um, I like silly metaphors <laughs> <laughs> it was clear too you know some yeah. of us are rolling through life we're rolling up you know huh, huh, yeah like with the nose <laughs> jumping out with the floppy shoes like we're on the set like yeah you are you know taking the attention but it's not for good reason exactly you know what i'm saying and you're creepy yeah i mean i don't know no disrespect to any clowns that are listening no disrespect yeah. but just personally you know and you know i think that the a really great example that you talked about is you know a breakup yeah. And somebody having that really emotional, especially if it was something really negative that happened, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a good example would be, you know, uh, a, a, a guy just, uh, you know, cheats on the girl, breaks up with her, and she just doesn't understand why. Mm-hmm. And this just, she creates, has this terrible feeling and then attaches the meaning to justify, which is, you know, all guys suck. Yeah, men are They, they yeah. can't be trusted. Yeah. And... Or you can create create another story, which is you suck. Yeah. And you talk about that as well. And both of them are going to probably lead you in an unhealthy direction. Yes. But then you get into another relationship and the guy is amazing, but you still have that idea that all guys suck. They're terrible. Yeah. And it's just a matter of time. And then you start self-sabotaging and digging and finding problems, like getting super microscopic to find problems with this really good guy. And sometimes we set ourselves up for failure like that. And I've seen that firsthand in my life. Absolutely. Because when I met my now wife, you know, we've been together for about 15 years, man. Oh, wow. And well, when we first got together, you know, she you know, she, she didn't have nobody like me, you know, before. <laughs> <laughs> you know, prior, you know, she had somebody who really broke her, you know, broke yeah. her down or whatever. And uh, you see, I said, or whatever, because it's nothing, you know, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm sorry. But, you know, so she gave, she came into the relationship with me with all of these strange beliefs about about guys about in general men, yeah. and even about me and I just wasn't that guy because I chose not to be at that point in my yep. life by the way because I could have been that guy that's the thing all of us can be all of these things and 
we were together for a couple of years, just like, just crazy in love. Like, I want to be with her forever. And, you know, I proposed to her. We were going to get married. And then once we got married, we were talking one day and she thought I was going to break up with her before, wow. like when we were getting engaged. And I was just like, why? It's like, what is, how? She talk, just Talk about the feeling brain taking over. It's like, no, no, the whole point of marriage is you don't break up. Man, she thought, she th she was so surprised that I proposed to her because she thought I was going to break up with her yeah, at some yeah. point. Like it was just, it was coming. Wow. You know, and we carry those things and we, the, the crazy thing is it creates little pieces of actions that we do mm -hmm. that can be detrimental at any point. Like you really got to be able to work on your own stuff yeah. to deal with that stuff as well. Yeah. Well, and this brings it back to the hope piece. So, you know, let's, let's take that example. Let's say woman, there's a guy cheats on girl, just breaks her heart, just destroys her. Her thinking brain now needs to justify that destruction. Like we have to create meaning out of our emotions. That's just what we do. And so she has a few options. And let's say that, yeah, she picks that option. She's like, men are just lying garbage. All men. They they only want it's like it's like that meme from that girl on Twitter. It's like <laughs> all men want one thing and they're it's disgusting. Uh, she adopts that's her that's her explanation for for her heart being broken, for all those emotions. What's crazy is that that little narrative that my heart was broken because all men are trash, that becomes a hope narrative. That's what maintains her hope in the world. Mm. She says like, because now it's, if I can just stay away from men and not get wrapped up with them, yeah. my life will be good. Yeah. And so people, and then we protect our hope narratives because that it's what gives our lives meaning. And so... It's hard to dislodge that. And then what happens is she meets a good guy like you and uh, and and it creates this dissonance within her. She's like, well, men are garbage, but this guy treats me really well and he's really nice and and there's just something doesn't sit right. And so she's got to, she, she either needs to let go of her narrative and trust the guy or she needs to hold on to the narrative and distrust the guy. And so what it what often happens in these situations is that we will sabotage good relationships because of our fear, because of basically of of our previous trauma and and maintaining our hope narratives. Cuz it's it's easier to experience the pain of another breakup that justifies the meaning we've created in our lives than to give up our meaning and just go with a good relationship. This is why we got to work on that communication. You know, oh, yeah. once you become aware of these patterns, that's the thing is like, you know, that statement awareness trumps everything. When you start to become aware, because yeah. a lot of stuff we're just doing and we're not paying attention to how we feel sometimes, or we're not paying attention to the meaning we're attaching to yep. the things. And so to becoming, to become aware and start to self-assess, you know, it's really the key. And this is like, Captain Obvious stuff, but not so much. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's obvious, but it's difficult, right? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's work, man. One, one thing I always say about this stuff is, is it's like, like, and, and I call these, I, I think it's subtle art, I call them VCR questions because it, there's a whole story behind it. But it's like, I get emails all the time. People are like, they'll come to me and they're like, man, I, I just, I really want to move to another city, but like my parents don't want me to like, but I really want to do it. Like, what? Sh how do I do it? 
I'm like, well, it's easy. You just like pack your shit, drive to the other city. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's like it, people, what is emotionally painful, we misinterpret as being logically complicated. So it's like our feel, it hurts our feeling brain to do it. And so our thinking brain decides that it must be very complicated and complex. And so we need to devise all these plans and come up with a step-by-step solution. And it's like, no, dude, you just pack your crap, get in the car, drive to the next city. That's it. That's it. It's not complicated. It's but it's hard. Yeah. It hurts. And so we avoid it. Yeah. Man, this is just it's so profound. And for us to understand like those feelings matter and they're it's not that they're bad. You no. know, it's we, like we label them, you know, because yeah. you feel that sadness or you might feel angry or whatever the case might be. All of these feelings are valuable yes. and they give us valuable feedback. And it's just, again, it really boils down to the meaning we attach to it, man. So listen, there's so much I want to talk to you about. <laughs> we're, we're still in chapter two. <laughs> right, man. I want to jump ahead a little bit, actually. Sure, sure. You know, um, I don't know how far ahead, actually. There's so many things I want to talk to you about. But let's, you know what? Let's do this. I, I got to ask you about a couple of these laws. Okay. If we have time, we'll do one or two of them. Sure. And just to give a really brief context, this was like parallel universe of Isaac Newton. Yeah. It's just but the way you put it together, it it created a vessel for this to make sense, you know? Yeah. And so um let's hit a couple of these laws sure. if we can. So the first law is what? Is every action creates an equal and opposite emotional reaction. Mm, yes. Um and just to just to give listeners context. So chapter three of the book is kind of a it's a playful historical fiction of Isaac Newton and his three laws of motion. But I take his three laws of motion and write them as the three laws of emotion. So the first one is, is every action creates an equal and opposite emotional reaction. And the idea is that uh, whenever we experience something positive, like let's say, let's say Sean just, you know, reaches over and hits me in the face, you know, which he seems prone to do <laughs> at any moment. <laughs> Um, I thought about it. Yeah, <laughs> like, I want to do that. Um, let's let's say let's say he reaches over and hit and just smacks me in the face. You know what what happens? My natural inclination, my natural reaction, is going to be hit you back. You know, essentially, you cause me pain. A negative emotion results, whether it's anger, or sadness, whatever, and that emotion is going to impel me to what I, I call it equalization. So it's like, if you hit me, I'm gonna feel bad until I hit you back or until you apologize or until like, you know, I screw you over in some way. You know, it's basically, there needs to be a sense of parity and, and equality between us before that negative emotion will go away. And the same is true with a positive emotion. Like, let's say like you buy me a really nice gift and I'm like, oh, damn, dude. Like, you didn't have to do that. Oh, shit. And then like, I'm going to feel like, man, I need to do something nice for him. And I'm going to have that feeling until I do, you know? And it's, and so you equal either way you go, whether you, you create a negative experience for me or a positive experience for me, uh, there's this emotional push mm -hmm. towards reaching parity again. Um, and this is hugely important because if we don't equalize, it lingers, so let's say when I'm a kid, I get bullied. Um, 
because I'm like skinny or small or whatever. And I get bullied and bullied and bullied as a kid. And I never, and I have all these negative emotions about towards these, the bullies and towards myself for being so scrawny and like just, I, I just feel a lot of shame and, and guilt. And I never equalize. I never confront my bullies. I never get them back. I never prove something to them. That stays with me. And it, and eventually it becomes unconscious. Uh, uh, you know, the feeling brain, remember, the thinking brain will forget it, but the feeling brain holds on to it. And decades later, you know, I could be yeah. in my 30s or 40s, I've still got this messed up self-image issue or maybe this deep insecurity around, you know, people who are bigger than me or people who can see me or whatever that is essentially this lingering equalization issue. Does that make sense? Absolutely, man. Yeah. And it's, again, these are things that are happening for a lot of us. Everybody. Yeah. Everybody. We've all got it in some form or another. Um, and I even talk about, like, even if you're, like, some rich, obnoxious trust fund kid and your daddy just gives you everything, you know, you got a Lamborghini on your 16th birthday or whatever, you're, like, one of those kids on MTV, like, what happens is that all these good things keep happening to you, but you're never able to equalize. You're never able to give back. You're never able to uh, return favors. And so you develop a sense of entitlement. You're like, oh, well, this is just how it's supposed to be. Like, I, I deserve something from everybody around me. Mm. Um, and so you develop this sense of entitlement, and then that harms your relationships going through your life. And so if, you, if you're coming from that end of the spectrum, like a very privileged end of the spectrum, uh, reaching a state of emotional health is all about letting go of these assumptions of what you deserve and what you don't deserve. Yeah. Just like the victim of being bullied needs to let go of his assumptions of what he deserves or doesn't deserve. Yeah, wow. And this is in parallel with this increase in wealth is coincided with an increase in mental health issues yes. and uh, depression, suicide. And uh, the great thing is, as well is like with your book, there's so many references yeah. that you're pulling in and statistics that people could check out uh, in the back of the book as well. And it's just really, really well done. So I really, really want to, before I let you go, I've got to talk about this hedonic treadmill and this experiment you talk about with psychologists handing people pagers yeah. And then they're tracking their happiness. Yep. And the drama ensues from there. So let's talk <laughs> about that. So back in the day, you know, mo for most of psychology's history, they really studied just kind of how people were screwed up, you know, mental disorders and things like that. Uh, and then the, the, a movement started in the like, late 70s, early 80s. It, today it's called positive psychology. But basically a bunch of psychologists got together and they're like, man, this is a downer. Like, let's study what makes people happy. Like, let's study how to make life better um, instead of just, you know, studying what, how people get screwed up. And so a group of psychologists started, and one of the first things they wanted to understand, logically, is just what makes people happy and what doesn't. And so they ran a bunch of, like, really large experiments where, um, remember this back in the 80s, so they gave people pagers. And basically all the experiment was was go about your life and then at, random times you'll get the psychologist will page you and then whenever you're paged you you have a little notebook and you write down what you're doing and then on a scale from one to ten how happy are you 
and they collected this from hundreds or thousands of people and crunched all the data. And what they found was that pretty much everybody's a seven all the time. Um, now, that doesn't mean people don't deviate from seven, but it, what, what that means is that people would, you know, they'd be like, oh, shopping from groceries, seven, you know, putting my kid to bed, seven. Uh, and then maybe something good would happen. You know, it's like they have a birthday. And so they go up to a nine for a day. Yeah. But then the day after the birthday, they're back to a seven. Um, or they have a fight with their boss. So they're down to a five. But then a couple days later, they're back to a seven. Um, and even like extreme events in life, um, people get in car accidents or uh, they get a huge raise at work or they get married. It's like, you know, you'd see it jump up or jump down for a few days or a week or two, but it always comes back to seven. And so what they started calling this was was uh, people's baseline of happiness. And now everybody deviates a little. You know, some people are more like a 7.5, some people more like a 6.5, but generally everybody's kind of around the seven territory. And you're, you're constantly, no matter what happens to you in life or what you do in life, you're constantly kind of slingshotted back to that seven. Um, it's like a thermostat. Yes, exactly. And so, and this gets back to, kind of brings it full circle to kind of how we started the podcast because one of the things I talked about is is that our psychology is kind of built in a way to constantly make us have these visions of hope in our future, that it's going to make everything great. So what, what I talk about and what they found is that essentially we all carry around these visions of what our 10 is. You know, we think to ourselves like, man, if I could just get a, a raise at work, I'd be a 10. Or if I could buy a new car, man, that, that'd put me at a 10. And what happens is we accomplish these things. And sure, yeah, we're a 10 for a day, a week, but then we go back to a 7. And we have to find a new vision of a 10. Yeah. And psychologists call this the hedonic treadmill because essentially what happens is the more, the better and better our life gets the harder we have to run to stay at the same happiness level. Like the more we gain, the more we have to lose. And so it creates more anxiety and more mm. stress. Um, and so it's, if you, and this is kind of what I was saying earlier about eventually what you realize, especially when you've had kind of like a crazy rise in success, like I did, is, is I realized that like, you have to get off the hedonic treadmill at some point. Like you can't, if you live your life just chasing these imaginary tens constantly, you're just gonna be running and running and running and not getting anywhere. Um, and so ultimately, kind of what the book is driving towards is, is looking at how do we get off that hedonic treadmill? How do we, how do we let go of these visions of hope but still live a healthy uh, in fulfilling life. Um, and it's hard and it's hard. And I, and I think it's, it's a question that's not being asked a whole lot these days. Uh, but you know, judging by how developed and wealthy and comfortable the world is getting, um, I think it's going to be a bigger and bigger discussion Absolutely. in the Absolutely. years to come. And thank you for putting this together because I think that it's going to be around a long time as we are going through this process of becoming more successful and comfortable in our lives and 
having so much access to all these things. Like we already have so much yeah. as a society, um, but we need to have this these tools to guide us towards this inner work because yeah. this is what the, the real action is happening inside of us. Yeah. You know, so man, I'm just pumped and grateful to have you on. And can you let everybody know, number one, where they can pick up the book? Yeah. And also uh, let them know where they can check you out online, social media, all that good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the book is called Everything is F***, a book about hope. Um, it's available everywhere in the English language. If it's It comes out May 14th. I assume this is coming out after that. So it's going to be in every bookstore, uh, on Amazon, everywhere. And then my website is markmanson.net. Um, I post there every few weeks, every month or so. Um, and then I'm on all the social media as well. So Perfect. At Mark Manson on social media? Uh, at Mark Manson Net on social media. Boom. Man, thank you so much for coming to hang out with Thanks me. Thanks for having me, dude. Appreciate it's it, good man. seeing you again. Awesome. Everybody, thank you so much for tuning into the show today. Man, these are just like my, my brain feels like it's on a treadmill right now and just learning so much. I've been diving into this, fortunately, uh, getting access to an early copy of the book and um, just really asking questions within myself. And I think it's so important because another thing that kind of fuels us and that communication between our thinking brain and our feeling brain is the questions we ask and getting that feedback. And I think that questions are the answer in a sense. And so beginning to ask questions of ourselves, listening in the feeling language to that feedback, and also, you know, in many instances, asking more empowering questions instead of asking so often, you know, what's wrong with me? Uh, asking, you know, um, what is it that I need to learn from this situation? Or what is this trying to teach me? And kind of listening to that inner guidance system as well. So, man, this is just super fascinating stuff. And it's a big part of the work that I've been doing over the years because, Again, the tactics for being healthy and having great relationships, those things are relatively simple, but it's getting ourselves to the place where we actually do them. That's where the real work lies. And we have access to that within our within ourselves and doing this inner work. So just very grateful to have Mark on and definitely check out the book. If this is airing uh, prior to the book release, make sure to pick it up, pre-order it. It's, I'm not going to say it's going to sell out, but it, you know, it might. And you want to be one of the first people to get it. So... Uh, I just thank you so much for tuning into the show. And I know that uh, you've got a big mission, a big vision, and it's just about getting more clear on what that is and utilizing these tools so that you can take the action steps to really tapping into your own unique gifts and talents and capacities and enjoying the process along the way as much as possible. All right. I appreciate you so much for tuning in. Take care. Have an amazing day. And I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.